Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. My name is Stephen Peck, and I am your host today. As well, I am the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. We are the industry association that promotes green roofs and walls across North America. Today, I am delighted to be in conversation with my dear friend and colleague, Bill Browning, one of the foremost world experts on the subject of biophilic design. Biophilic design is a practice which focuses on incorporating direct and indirect experiences of nature, as well as space and place conditions in the built environment at both the building and community scale. It is based on or rooted in the concept of biophilia, which means affinity for or love of nature. Having evolved in natural environments for hundreds of thousands of years, humans have a natural affinity to the things that help us survive, like running water and shelter. We also have a biophobia or a fear or dislike of the things that can harm us, such as things like sharp edges, snakes, and loud noises. So evolutionists hardwired us, regardless of our race, class, or culture, to like and respond favorably to certain aspects of our environment. Biophilic design is the practical manifestation of biophilia and what we have learned from science and intuition to be positive and healthy for ourselves. It is a lens through which we can look at buildings and communities to determine if they are designed in a health-giving way. Numerous scientific studies across a broad range of different disciplines have found that biophilic design can have a hugely beneficial impact on our health and well-being, including things like lowering our blood pressure, reducing the production of stress hormones, and improving our mental engagement. My guest today, Bill Browning, who's an honorary member of the American Institute of Architects and the LEAD AP, has been conducting research and consulting in this field for more than 20 years. Early in his career, Bill helped build Buckminster Fuller's last experimental structure. In 1991, he founded Green Development Services at the Rocky Mountain Institute, an entrepreneurial nonprofit think and do tank. His consulting projects at the Rocky Mountain Institute included new towns, resorts, building renovations, and high-profile demonstration projects, including Walmart's EcoMart, the greening of the White House, the National Aquarium, Disney Hong Kong, the Pentagon, Lucasfilm, the Grand Canyon National Park, and the Sydney 2000 Olympic Village. In 1999, Green Development Services was awarded the President's Council for Sustainable Development Renew American Prize for its outstanding work. Terrapin Bright Green was founded in 2006 by Bill Browning and architects Rick Cook and Bob Fox of the prestigious firm Cook Fox Architects. Chris Garvin, an accomplished green architect, soon joined the firm. Together, This alliance of expertise established Terrapin as a trusted consultant to major corporations and developers, governments, and other organizations seeking to answer the challenges of high-performance design in the 21st century. To reaffirm their environmental and social values, Terrapin Bright Green became a certified B Corporation in 2016. 
In addition to consulting, Bill writes and lectures widely on sustainable design and building practices. He is a co-author of Green Development, Integrating Ecology and Real Estate, A Primer on Sustainable Building, Greening the Building and the Bottom Line, and Biophilic Design, The Economics of Biophilia, and Mid-Century Unmodern. Bill has a lecture, an introduction to biophilic design, on the Living Architecture Academy, the online training platform of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. His recent work, The Economics of Biophilia, version 2.0, has just been released. I'm very pleased to have Bill on the show and to share his thoughts on the subject of biophilic design and his latest book. Bill, thank you very much for being on the show and congratulations on your new book, The Economics of Biophilia, Volume 2.0. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, it uh, took a little bit longer to do than we expected. We thought we were going to do uh, a mere update of our uh, 2012 publication, The Economics of Biophilia. And as we got into it, we realized there was so much more that's happened in, in the time frame since then. And so three years later and, <laughs> and tripled in size, we now have the new publication. Uh, but we're very happy that it's out. Um, and we learned a lot from it. And we think that it will be a really good tool for helping people make the argument about why biophilic design is important to offices and education and retail and healthcare and hospitality and communities. You know, uh, there's no doubt there's just a rapidly um, evolving field with more information uh, and uh, and science and, and reasons for doing it. And it's fantastic that you've been working to pull all that together. But just for the lay person, I'd, I'd like to take a few minutes to go over some of the basic ideas in this field again. Is that okay with you? Sounds great. So in your own words, how would you describe the concepts of biophilia, which sounds like some dreaded disease, and biophilic design? Like, in your own words, where do these concepts come from and what do they mean for the layperson? So biophilia, which is a mouthful, <laughs> actually comes from the social psychologist Eric Fromm, who put together the Greek roots, bios, life, and philia, love. The working definition that we tend to see most commonly comes from this from Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson. And he essentially said it's an innate affiliation to nature and lifelike processes. And you see a lot of the early work going back and looking at paleontology, looking at evolutionary psychology, looking at environmental psychology, looking at neuroscience, looking at a whole bunch of different fields, and literally just sort of asking the question of, how do experiences of nature impact us? What does it mean for our stress rate? What does it mean for cognitive performance? How does it impact our mood? Does it make us like places more? Does it impact our social behavior? And so it's really kind of looking at uh, these experiences of nature and you know, you think about it, the you know, vast majority of our uh, time as a species was outdoors. You know, now we spend 90% of our lives indoors. So the, the whole idea of what we're trying to do is say, okay, I would love to get people outdoors a lot more, um, but I realize that that's not always possible. So how do I bring positive experiences of nature into the built environment in a way that's going to benefit those people? 
And that's where the biophilic design component comes in. Correct. Yeah. It's translating, taking experiences of nature and saying, okay, what would that experience be inside the building um, or around the building? And then developing design measures that are in support of that. Can you give us an example or two um, of one of the components of biophilic design, which is the direct experience of nature? Um, does this mean like going up onto a beautiful green green roof during lunch hour? Does that count as a direct experience of nature, for example? What, what are we talking about here? That would be a really good one, right? So uh, a lot of our sensory processing is visual. So one of the first patterns we identified was a visual connection to nature, literally seeing nature. And that can be seeing nature being out in nature. It can be looking out a window. It can be having lunch on a green roof and being surrounded by it. Or it can even be just a photograph or a painting on the wall. Uh, now, those different experiences impact us differently. Uh, all are beneficial. Some are the deeper the immersion. Uh, the more beneficial it is. So the longer we have a direct experience of nature, the better it is for our health and well-being. So there's really interesting work in uh, Japan. Uh, they uh, they call the work Shinyunyoko, or forest bathing. And so they look at people going out, having the experience walking through a forest or being in a natural forest. And they compare that to walking on an urban street or sitting in the forest or sitting on a busy urban corner. And they look at blood pressure and heart rate. And uh, they also take a, a saliva sample, which in the saliva is a stress hormone called cortisol. And cortisol is a pretty good indicator of how stressed we are. And it's, level changes pretty rapidly uh, in the body. After having the, even just a 15 minute exposure in that park or uh, forest, what they see is blood pressure's down, heart rate improves, cortisol level goes down. Now that's all great, but now you put someone back in the building and what you know, what do you see happen? Well, for us, what was really interesting was that the cortisol level doesn't shoot right back up. After that exposure of nature, that cortisol level stays down. If I go on vacation to the beach or the mountains or to a national park, I come back and that deep immersion in nature can translate into my cortisol level being down for a couple of weeks after that vacation. So it's not just a temporary effect. It's something that stays with us. Right. That's maybe uh, referred to as recharging your batteries. That's a good way to think about it for sure. So um, direct experiences of nature. And then there's this other component of biophilic design referred to as indirect experience of nature. Can you explain that uh, to us? Yeah, before we jump to the indirect, uh, there are other ways of doing the direct experience of nature as well. So things like bringing sunlight into the space, bringing breezes and air movement and temperature differentials into the space, having the presence of water in the space. 
also the non-visual connections to nature, the sounds of birds, leaves rustling, the smells of nature, uh, the tactile, the, you know, the experience of, of touch, all of those are other ways of bringing uh, nature directly into the space. Uh, and then one more is just the experience of over time, seeing like uh, we are right now here in Washington DC, the leaves changing colors and the, and the seasons changing. That connection to natural systems is important as well. So we've identified seven different experiences uh, of direct experiences of nature, which we call nature in the space. The indirect experiences of nature, we call natural analogs, and we uh, kind of categorize those into three broad categories. The first is using biomorphic forms and patterns, right? The shapes that you see and the sorts of patterns that you see again and again in nature, um, and then translating those into the built environment. Now, that's nothing new. You know, you can go back to Govateki, the oldest known permanent Hermian structure that's been excavated you know, for more than 5,000 BC. And what do you see? These beautiful stone columns that have um, animals carved all over them, right? So biomorphic forms. But you see it in fabric, you see it in uh, plaster work, you see it in carpet, right? Leaves and shells and butterflies and birds and flowers and Right, these are all biomorphic forms. But even you'll see, you know, a vase shaped like a human, and you know, so those sorts of shapes and all that biomorphic forms, those sorts of patterns, um, and you can also see, see some of the underlying math in some of that, and things like the Fibonacci sequence, and the golden mean, and the, and um, and the golden spiral. Those things are you know occur again and again in nature, and when they uh, when we see them in human designed objects, they're they're really uh, beneficial, and even some of the underlying patterns underneath those. So things like um, when I've got a set of lines moving in the same direction, like you see in wood grain or a field of wheat or the fur on an animal, right? It's a whole series of lines. They're not perfectly parallel. They may have curvature to them. But when the, when you have a set of lines moving in the same direction, it's one set of neurons that processes that. If I just rotate that 45 degrees, now I've got a different set of neurons that's doing it, or 90 degrees off is a different set of neurons. So if I have an environment where I've got lots of that pattern moving in the same direction, that's much easier for the brain to process and that lowers our stress. And so when we see those sorts of patterns and patterns that occur again and again in nature, uh, in human designed objects that lowers our stress. The next category uh, in indirect experience of nature is the use of natural materials, wood and stone, uh, bamboo and uh, other natural materials. We don't know why, but for some reason, the brain separates real versus man-made almost instantaneously. And it seems to be a subconscious process. And it's, and you know, one of the ways you can kind of see that play out is you see that beautiful flower arrangement and you walk over and you touch it 
and discover that it's plastic and you just kind of go, oh, it's just so disappointing, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, think, I think what's happening there is that, you know, the brain told us subconsciously, oh, isn't that beautiful? Aren't those beautiful flowers? And we go over and we realize that we were faked out. Mm. We don't like get better and better at it. We don't, like it when our, we don't like it when our subconscious lies to us, right? Yeah. Now, we are getting better. They're getting better at, at, at making plastic plants. They, they look more and yeah. more real every year. And there are, you know, and I'll admit, there are some applications where um, we might use some of those. As long as they're, you know, far enough away that I can't get really close to them and I can't touch them, right? Mm. So we had a couple applications where just couldn't get the lights to work on the upper end of a, of a green wall. So blended in some of those in, but you know, our preference is let's keep it alive. Let's use the real thing. Let's that also, because with the living um, you might get scent, you get changes in growth patterns, right? It's non-static. Sorry. No matter how beautiful that plastic plant is, it's not going to change. Might get yeah. dusty, but <laughs> right, that's about it. Yeah. Um, pretty so, limited. Pretty limited. So we, you know, similarly, um, you know, use of natural materials. There are there's some really good simulations of wood, um, but they don't usually they don't always touch the pass the touch test. Um, and the other thing is that wood has this characteristic to it that. So far, none of the ceramics or plastics or any of the other sort of fake woods have been able to do. And that is that wood's a cellular material. So when I'm looking at wood, I'm not just seeing the light bouncing off the surface, but the light penetrates into that cellular structure and bounces back. And so you're actually seeing the light moving through multiple layers before it gets back to your eyes. And none of the fake materials can do that. The third category there in what we call natural analogs or indirect experiences of nature would be uh, complexity and order. We love environments that are um, somewhat ordered, but if they're too ordered or too the same, they get boring. If they get too complex, then they can actually cause some anxiety. And so it's that balance between those two. And one of the way that plays out is in types of patterns that are called statistical fractals. And so that's kind of a tough way to explain a something that occurs all over the place in nature where you have a repeating pattern that repeats at multiple scales, but has some variation in it. So a classic example is, you know, if you look at a snowflake, you see a pattern and you'll see that pattern repeated in that same snowflake at several scales. Or if you look at a fern leaf, you'll see the pattern repeated at several scales in that. Or waves coming onto a beach or flames dancing in the fireplace. Mm. Or one of my favorites is the dappled sunlight under trees or the light filtering through vines on a pergola overhead. Right, that incredible dappled sunlight underneath is is you know a great example of statistical fractal. So when, it's a blend of order and chaos, 
yeah that excites us or animates us or the most which is quite extraordinary of a finding and what's what's cool about it is that you know we can use those kinds of patterns we can generate them with computer programs or just sit down and draw them um in human designed objects and you find carpet and you find you find all sorts of materials that uh, or even light designs that do this and when we see those sorts of patterns in human designed objects it's much quicker and much easier for the brain to process mm. and so we can see through eeg or even galvanic skin testing almost an immediate drop in stress so the neuroscientists call that in that effect fractal fluency the brain is fluent with these fractal experiences and so when we translate it into our own designs and spaces that's a good thing fascinating fascinating now what about the third uh grouping of biophilic design patterns this the nature of the space i think you call it or space and place yeah how does that work so there are there are sort of three-dimensional spatial experiences that occur within nature that impact us in really interesting ways. The, some of the first work on that um, came from the English landscape geographer, Jay Appleton. And he asked in the, back in the 1970s, he asked this kind of profoundly simple question is he said, you know, I could be standing on this hilltop and I look in one direction and I see a view that I really like and I turn my head 90 degrees and go, oh, not so much. Why? You know, what, what's happening here? And he said, there, there are things about that three-dimensional experience and things that I'm seeing that impact that. And out of that, he identified two patterns, two spatial experiences that we see again and again and again used um and there's increasing uh been a lot of work on on these two topics so the first one is a condition called prospect so prospect is an unimpeded view through space it's really good for perceptions of safety wayfinding opportunity um you know putting the window at the end of the corridor in a hallway so I can actually see out and get that daylight totally changes the experience of a double loaded corridor with no windows on the end. Or, you know, being in an office space and be able to see that green wall on the other end of the, of the space, that, that distant view and have a clear path to it. So prospect is great and it uh, definitely lowers stress and, Helps with uh, perceptions of wayfinding. What's right. uh, what's wave wayfinding? Uh, just for the what does that mean? That term. How do I how do I get through this space? How do I get from here to there? Right. Um, you know where do I, you know where do I go? <laughs> yeah. Where like, do I uh, go? Like, like the frustration that comes from going into a place and not being appropriate signage to tell you which way you need to go. Right. Is the opposite of wayfinding, I suppose. Or, you know, there are, you know, you can intentionally design a space to make it really hard um, to find your way out, right? And that is one of the key uh, design principles if you're designing a casino. 
or I or an IKEA store. They're they're masters. <laughs> you know, you get trapped right. in there. You got to go through the the product <laughs> maze before you can get out. You know, <laughs> usually. Right. So then the second condition that he identified is refuge. Refuge is where my back is protected, at least at the nape of my neck, but my back is protected and I may have some canopy overhead. You know, a classic example would be, you know, think about a restaurant and classic restaurant design in the center of the restaurant, you have the round tables and then around the perimeter, you might have up on a plinth, you have uh, a couple steps up, you have all these high back booths. And, you know, I don't know about you, but inevitably, I want to be in the booth, right? And yeah. so there, I'm, my back is protected, right? And the ceiling's a little closer, so I've got canopy overhead. And if it's up on a plinth, now I have a view across the whole rest of the restaurant. So now I have prospect and refuge together. Right? I've asked restaurateurs about that Uh that concept before and it inevitably yep it's always the booths that fill up first oh yeah 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 uh prospect and refuge mm -hmm. so another one of my favorite examples i'm i'm a huge fan of craftsman architecture you know and the classic craftsman bungalow and almost any place in north america has though has like three steps up to this big porch with the overhanging, big overhanging roof over the top of it. And so you can sit on that porch and you can have this great view all the way, all up and down the street. So now I've got prospect, my back is protected, I have canopy overhead. So now I have prospect and refuge together. Yeah. So those, those are the first two of those patterns. Then the next one is uh, called mystery or some of the uh, researchers called enticement. And think about when you're out walking in a park in the forest and the path curves. And if you've got dogs with you or kids, they bolt and they go running to go see around what's around that corner, right? And you gotta go follow them. What they're responding to is just that there's partially revealed information around there, and we just got to go see what's around that curve. Mm. Now, we can do that with sound. Where's that music coming from? I got to go find that music. Or bakeries are really good about that, about putting the scent, right? Putting the smells out onto the street. You're walking down the street going, I smell cookies. Where, where are those, right? So that's, that's mystery or enticement. Um, the next pattern, uh, which was the final pattern in our original 14 patterns of biophilic design, is risk peril. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fun one. It's one you don't want to use too much of, but it's where there's maybe a little bit of danger, but there's also kind of safety. And so, um, you know, a classic example would be the uneven stepping stones through the through the pond in a Japanese garden, right? Um, you might fall in, you know, water's maybe 18 inches deep, not like you're gonna get too hurt, maybe you get wet and messy, um, but it is a little, you know, a little fun and exhilarating. Or 
Another example I love is uh, in New York City, the Guggenheim Museum, the Frankreich Light Museum with the big central atrium and that big ramp that takes you, spiral ramp that takes you up to the top of that building. You get to the top of that building and you inevitably what you see is people looking over the railing into the center of that space. Now, Wright makes that a little bit more exhilarating by putting the rail just a little bit too low, right? You're not gonna fall over, but it is a little bit uncomfortable. So inevitably what you see when people are looking over that railing, they put the two hands on the railing and then peer over it, right? And so risk peril is fun because it actually elicits a really strong dopamine response, a pleasure response in the brain. Um, so risk peril is great. You don't want to use too much of it. I'm wondering, Bill, if, if um, you know, amusement rides oh, have some absolutely. aspect of risk peril built into them. Oh, completely. You know, a <laughs> uh, uh, roller coaster is all about that, right? <laughs> yeah. You're locked in. You're kind of feeling safe, but they scare the uh, the daylights out of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so those were, uh, in 2014, when we published 14 Patterns of Biophilic Design, those were the original ones. Um, we have subsequently added a new pattern. Um, and the main reason was that when we, it was something we were interested in when we originally wrote this, but there wasn't enough science to explain this pattern. And so I'll describe the pattern and I'll see if you can name it. Let's uh, come back with this. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back with Bill uh, Browning and the latest uh, pattern uh, in the suite of biophilic design tools. Stay with us. The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low impact development, and sustainable design practices. To celebrate the holiday season, we're running a winter sale of 25% off all courses and recordings on the Living Architecture Academy from December the 1st to January 15th, 2024. Save on courses covering biodiverse green infrastructure, urban water management, and urban food production, or sign up for the Green Roof Professional Training Bundle, which includes everything you need to become an accredited GRP, all for the lowest prices of the year. All courses on the Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP continuing education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com and take advantage of the winter sale before it's over. We're back with Bill Browning, who is a world expert in the field of biophilic design. And we're talking about how uh, biophilic design really influences our everyday life. Uh, Bill, uh, you were just going to tell me about a new uh, type of biophilic design or a new pattern that's just been validated. What's that all about? So let me describe two experiences and then let's see if you can name it. So I'm in the deserts out west and I'm walking through the really beautiful uh, pygmy juniper uh, and pinion forest. It smells beautiful. You know, I see the, hear the gravel crunching underfoot. It's quiet and it's uh, dappled sunlight. 
but I see in the distance, I see that you know, in that direction, the, the light's brighter. And so I walk that way and I emerge out from the out from underneath this forest and all of a sudden I'm standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and I stop and my mouth drops open and my eyes get wide and just, okay. So that's experience number one. Experience number two is I'm uh, in Rouen and in France and uh, I come in under the big dark heavy doors of the cathedral and, and into the, the narthex with the uh, big sort of dark space there and, and the uh, lowered ceiling and I walk through the narthex and then all of a sudden I merge out into the the nave and here are those giant columns going up forming like a forest over my head and there are the beautiful beams of colored light coming through the stained glass windows and you know the sound in the space and it's just extraordinary and I stop and my eyes get wide and my mouth drops open and I'm having an experience of awesomeness yeah the pattern of awe and it turns out that it's awe is really interesting so the science the new scientific definition of awe is that it literally is an overwhelming or overloading of portion of the brain that then requires you to reaccommodate or readjust your worldview and you can have one without the other and it's not all you kind of have to have the two together uh and what's interesting about it is that, you know, the word awe, we trace back to the German, and the original definition of awe was really about fear, like fear of God. Or in the, in the late 1700s into the 1800s, that then shifts into this idea called the sublime, which was, you know, the thunderstorm and the rainbow. So both beautiful and terrible. And then as we move forward in time more, awe also now just becomes uh, more this, you know, overwhelming and it can be beauty and it can be a piece of artwork. It can be a piece of music, it can be meeting a famous person, uh, but it's also a spatial experience as well. Now, what's really intriguing about it is that it lights up a very specific portion of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex actually overloads. And when that happens, that's when you see the, bo the body just sort of pauses. That's why the muscles in the face go slack, your eyes get wide. Um, and you'd think if it was a maybe a fear experience, your blood pressure and heart rate would go up. That's not the case. Everything in the body just sort of hits the pause button while you take it in. The outcomes though are really intriguing. It lowers our stress and lowers stress-related symptoms. It tends to make us happier, more charitable, a little bit humble, uh, changes our worldview, makes us feel more connected, and we tend to exhibit much more pro-social behavior after having an awe experience. And more so pro-social behavior. More pro-social behavior. What exactly We're does that mean? That means we're nicer to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for dragging me out here, Dad. Grand Canyon's cool after all. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so, and, you know, I should point out, though, that Anjan Chatterjee, the neuroscientist who's doing the neuroaesthetics work at University of Pennsylvania at UPenn, has pointed out that each of these different patterns, the prospect, refuge, mystery, risk, peril, awe, lights up different specific portions of the brain. And so that's also one of the ways we can sort of tell that these are unique patterns in that um, they're triggering different places of the brain are uh, responding to these experiences. And so that's one of the things that's been really interesting over the last, particularly over the last 12, 14 years, is that a lot of stuff in the earlier work going back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that sort of predicted what might be going on, the neuroscientists has finally been able to say, yeah, we can actually see that happening in the brain. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, um, it'd be interesting to uh, to determine whether or not awe is something that is like a particular aspect of awe is universal or whether or not we choose to be awed by certain things. So it can there can be cultural traits to awe. Um, you know, some of the grand experiences of awe are fairly universal. But there's also, you can also sort of train yourself to be more uh, aware of it. So if you go out on nature hikes and, you know, being immersed in it and you're in this, what's called a state of soft fascination where you're, you're there, you're present, you're paying attention, but you're, but you're also not totally focused. Um, and so, and what's happening there is your prefrontal cortex is quieting down. After you have that experience, you have better cognitive capacity. So that's called attention restoration. But you can also sort of stop and look at that butterfly emerging from the cocoon, right? It's tiny, it's this little thing. But how incredible is that? Or look at that little tiny flower growing in the sidewalk, right? The little bloom that somehow is surviving in that crack in the sidewalk. How incredible is that, right? So there are ways of sort of attuning yourself to being conscious of little micro experiences of awe. And there's been some really interesting research over the last few years that says that doing that really does have uh, physiological and psychological benefits of being more aware of uh, and being open to paying attention to those things um, can have real benefits. Now, that really interests me because I've been pondering this. I, I walk uh, in a park um, not far from my house, which is a, a, a peninsula that stretches out five kilometers into Lake Ontario. Uh, and, you know, lots of people use the park, Bill. Some people are on their bikes with their headphones on, zipping along at whatever, 15 miles an hour. Other people are hiking. Then there are bird watchers. Then there are joggers. And I, I've really been thinking, like, do we, is there sort of a rating system or is it possible to rate how much benefit we get from a natural experience, a direct natural experience based on where we're at when we go into it. And what you're suggesting is, yes, 
we can, there's a way to actually get more from a, a nature experience, like a hike or less, depending on, like if I have my headphones on, I, I, I'm not going to hear the bird song, for example. Have you seen anything work done on this? Like how we can sort of optimize maybe our, the benefits from being in nature by understanding this? So there was an interesting study where they took senior citizens out on walks in nature uh, uh, and they would take, uh, and this happened over a course of a series of weeks and they would take one group uh, on the walk and just, you know, it was a walk through nature that had real benefits, heart rate, blood pressure, psychological um, helped lower uh, symptoms of depression that's sort of we see again and again and again they did the same walk with another group um but also had them pay attention to these micro experiences of law and the outcomes for that second group were better than the outcomes for the first group so there can be layers of that sort of tied to layers of intention and, and layers of uh, experience um but even just, you know, there, there was also work on what's called green exercise of looking at um, did riding a bike in a gym, you know, uh, you know, was that the same benefit as riding that bike in nature or running on a treadmill or running out in nature? And uh, there is good evidence that the green exercise experience uh, is more beneficial than than just doing it on a piece of equipment indoors. Now the the level of effort and exercise might be exactly the same, but the benefit is, is there's clearly more benefit from doing it outside. And there's also been work. Uh, Peter Kahn at the University of Washington was looking at uh, real versus simulated nature. And uh, so they gave people a stressor and where they had the recovery and recovery test was done in this room that had a wall of gray curtains. And for some of the recoveries, uh, it was just a wall of gray curtains. In other cases, window, uh, some of the curtains were open to expose one window and out the window, you could see a fountain and flowers and trees on the on the University of Washington campus. They also had a third condition, which was some of the curtains open and a high definition flat screen television of the exact same dimensions and aspect ratio as the window and broadcast live on that high definition television was the view out the window. Staring at the curtains was not particularly helpful in the recovery task. Um, didn't help with blood pressure, heart rate, or the recovery you know, test. Um, staring out the window, the real window, and the simulated window psychologically was pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Staring at the simulated uh, view, lowered blood pressure and heart rate but not as much as the real view, right? We think some of that may be due to the fact that the brain processes 2D and 3D images differently, right? And 
you know, it doesn't matter how great that screen is, I can move all around the room and what I'm seeing on that screen stays the same. But if I'm looking at a real view out a window, as I move around and I don't have to move very far, what I see three-dimensionally changes. Mm. And so the brain responds to those two experiences. Um, if I am have, you know, God forbid, a windowless space um, and I can't do anything else, then the simulated is helpful. And even just um, showing people a picture of nature, uh, Roger Ulrich and his team in Scandinavia did a study of cardiac patients uh, before or after surgery where they showed them either a blank sheet of white paper right before they went in or just came out uh, or showed them a picture of nature. And what they saw was lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, less stress level, uh, and quicker recovery times, just seeing a picture of nature. So that suggests to me that there are different, that it should be possible to uh, get more out of nature or more out of uh, more biophilic benefit, uh, depending on how you orient yourself to the natural world and what you have to work with. Clearly there are degrees or levels of, of benefit, human health benefits that are there to be had. Yeah. And there's some, there, you know, there's some really, there was a fun study um, in uh, done in Australia around this idea of attention restoration. And so it was done using an MRI machine. So uh, it's called fMRI, functional MRI. And they gave people their stressor and then for the recovery, they looked at uh, one of two images. So the first image was a rendering of a cityscape looking across a black asphalt roof. The second image was that same rendering, but on the black asphalt roof was now a green roof with um, these little yellow flowers growing on it. And it only took 40 seconds of viewing the version with the little yellow flowers and the green roof for the prefrontal to quiet for the prefrontal cortex to quiet down and people to have better cognitive capacity and so you know it doesn't have to be big grand nature it can be a tiny green roof that i can see from my window that can make a huge difference that is a great study to uh for me to look more into uh, given it uh seems to validate many of the things we know uh, intuitively. Um, one area of biophilic design, Bill, that we don't hear a lot about, you have mentioned it a couple of times, but I thought we might draw, um, draw your attention to it, is the sound component, some of the positive and also negative impacts of sound. I was wondering if you could um, explain what you've learned a little bit more about sound and its importance especially with all the cacophony that we have often in urban centers, you know, a, you know, screaming fire trucks and construction. And we're, we're, all, we're often surrounded by, by sound. In a, lot sound a lot of sound distraction. If I'm in an office uh, and I'm working away and I'm focused, if someone interrupts me, I get a sound that interrupts me. It can take as long as 23 minutes to get back on task. 
And so that's a lot of lost productivity. So the question then becomes, you know, what sounds could I bring into, uh, into a space that would be beneficial? So sound and, and the other senses are important because, you know, while so much of the brain's visual, uh, sensory processing is visual, we have these other senses and they, and they are really important. And we respond differently to different sounds. So in Europe, and when thinking about office design, there's the regulation that you have to have direct access to a window, right? You can't be more than about seven meters away from a window. And so as a result, you wind up with very thin floor plates. You know, the, the distance between the two outer walls is, is, is really close. And a lot of times they won't use carpet on the floor and, or they won't use a, acoustic tile overhead. And so as a result, you wind up with a space where the noise is just bouncing around all over the place and there's nothing to absorb it. And it's quite loud. So the German federal government asked the Fraunhofer Institute, uh, which is sort of the uh, federal lab group in Stuttgart, to do some experiments on what would be the most effective masking sound in an office setting. And so they looked at um, a variety of different sounds. They looked at white noise. They looked at a variation of white noise called pink sound. They looked at active noise cancellation, instrumental music, flowing water, bird song, uh, other conversations and said, you know, what, what sounds can I put in the space and what's gonna be the most effective masking sound in the space? The answer that they came to was white noise. What? Yeah, white noise from an acoustic standpoint, white noise is the most effective masking sound. But now I have to stop because that's the acoustic answer. And acoustics are really important, right? Acoustics tells us what, what sounds in a space, how it's bouncing around, how loud it is, what the reverberation, what's absorbing it. You know, but acoustics tells us what comes to our ear. Acoustics does not tell us what we're hearing. So now if I replicate that experiment uh, and do that experiment from the standpoint of what's called psychoacoustics, what the brain is hearing. And I, and I do that list again, you know, white noise, pink sound, uh, instrumental music, birdsong, water, active noise cancellation, garbled speech. The thing that comes to the top is water. And additional work that's been done in Manchester indicates not just any water sound, but the water like a small waterfall or a, little, or a little stream. Now, when you ask evolutionary psychologists about you know, why would we have that kind of response to water, um, they say, you know, let's go back to the savannas of Africa where humans evolved. We can go almost a month without food, but we can't go more than about 72 hours without water. Mm, yeah, And when you're on the savanna, it's beautiful, but there's not water everywhere. And some of the water is not too clean. The cleanest source of water is going to be well aerated, like a little waterfall or, or a small stream. And so it makes perfect sense that we will totally focus on that sound 
and screen everything else out. So psychoacoustics sometimes gets ex explained by you know, sort of what's called the cocktail party effect. If I'm in a bar at a cocktail party and I'm having a, a conversation with, with you, you know, we're hearing what each other are saying. What we don't realize is that you know, neither of us are, probably neither of us are yelling, but we're still getting every other conversation in the room is still coming into our ear. And so the brain's able to pull out and separate out that one channel of that conversation. So that's, so, that's psychoacoustics. And when that water sound is present in a space, the brain will choose that channel because the survival value of that presence of water. We also have been seeing some interesting work on bird song. And uh, in public spaces in particular, if there's a presence of bird song, we'll perceive that space as being safer. Now that makes that kind of makes sense because if you think about it, if you're sitting out in the forest and the and you've been there long enough that all the birds are chattering and the birds are going along in their own pattern, and then all of a sudden the birds get quiet. Something, yeah, there's danger afoot. Exactly. The birds let the birds tell uh, tell us this. Yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Watch out. Here comes Tony the Tiger. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Something's amiss. <laughs> Something's amiss, right? right? Yeah, wow, that's interesting. The birds, yeah, they are. They do that for uh, all kinds of species and each other, I suppose. They know. They're sitting in the trees. They can tell what's going on. Well, and what we're as we're diving into this, we're learning that, okay, so, yeah. Different birds have, okay, this is the call for, oh, it's a hawk, right? Or, uh, which means that not only, you know, okay, I need to fly here, you know, into the middle of the, into the middle of the, the thicket where the, the hawk can't get to me. Um, or, oh, it's a cat. Oh, I need to fly up and get, a, you know, get away from where it can jump to. Um, or it's a fox. I need to get off the ground, right? And so they actually have different calls for different predators uh, and a lot of the other species around you, them know what that call means and they'll have a response call to it as well. Uh, and so yeah, it's a really sophisticated level of communication uh, that's going on out there. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, the funniest is that there are some species that uh, have learned the alarm calls of other species oh yeah so there, there are cases where like you've got a bird feeder right and if you want to clear a bird feeder off instantly give the hawk alarm call <laughs> so there are there are there are a few species who've learned how to mimic the hawk alarm call you know they can they fly in towards a um, a bird feeder and it's just too crowded and they're not going to be able to get in right yeah so they sit over in the tree and they mimic the uh, hawk alarm call of this predominant species on the bird feeder, right? Uh -huh. And everyone in the bird feeder goes, ah, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then they sit and they wait for a minute or two and they come in and it's like, yay, we got the bird feeder to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty mind blowing. That's pretty mind blowing. Say, stay with us, folks. Uh, we're chatting with Bill Browning about how um, 
we are really finely tuned and wired into our environment, which has shaped us for thousands of years and how we can use this knowledge to make better places in the future for us to live, work and play. The Living Architecture Monitor is the fully digital quarterly publication by Green Rooms for Healthy Cities, featuring explorations of engaging design trends, thought-provoking interviews with industry leaders, and information about the latest developments in green roof and wall policy throughout North America and the world. The brand new winter issue looks at innovation at, in the green infrastructure field, addressing climate resilience, system integrations, and through creative applications and thoughtful design practices. Exploring new types of monitoring technologies for tracking and maintaining projects, new types of solar integration to maximize energy output and green roof co-benefits, multiple case studies on projects and techniques from across North America, the latest research on improving roadway air quality through green infrastructure, and much more. The Living Architecture Monitor is a green roof and green walls industry premier publication. So read the latest winter innovation issue today at thelivingarchitecturemonitor.com. We're back with Bill Browning, who's a world expert on the subject of biophilic design. And we've been talking about how birds and sounds and song uh, can affect us in terms of our um, ability to uh, function and focus in, in office environments. Um, Bill, your latest book, The Economics of Biophilia, um, you mentioned earlier there's been a lot of advancements uh, in this field since the, the first edition. Is, is that why you wrote it? Well, the, a couple of reasons. The first, the reason we wrote the original version was that um, early on we were having conversations with potential clients about biophilia and biophilic design, and we were getting sort of the head nodding up and down and people going, wow, that's really nice. And you realize that you that wasn't going much further than that's really nice. And so we wanted to, you know, we knew that there are some really big outcomes of applying biophilic design. There are real benefits in health and productivity and such. And, and so we decided to pull those together. And so that was the economics of biophilia. Uh, and so we did that in 2012. We uh, did some edits in 2015, but, you know, it sort of sat and it, we realized that it was time to, there enough had changed and there were other topics we wanted to include. And so that's when we launched uh, into writing um, the second edition of Economics of Biophilia. So it sounds to me like you're trying to get the attention of, you know, building owners, community planners as to why we should be paying more attention to this subject. Yeah. You know, and it plays out in really interesting ways. So People in offices with a view take fewer sick days. Um, and we see that it, um, you know, having a view uh, can increase productivity. There was a really interesting study in a green building, a really good green building with a lead gold rating, a um, call center for a municipal utility. And so that's one of those rare offices where you actually can figure out how many transactions per hour, right, are, are happening in all of that. Um, and, you know, it can be a little stressful because if I'm in a call center in the utility, people are calling into me and they're usually not too happy 
<laughs> about it. Um, and why, why won't my toaster work? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this call center was up on the second floor of this building and it uh, was a really, you know, a good green building, it had great daylighting, great lighting design. They had raised floor uh, and underfloor displacement ventilation. So you had a little vent by every workstation that you could adjust your own temperature and airflow. You know, this is a wow. good building. And the workstations were perpendicular to the window. And so you're sitting at your workstation, you got great light and you're staring at your computer screen. Outside the window were some trees and a view to a field. Um, and Lisa Hashong, a researcher in, um, in California, you know, said, you know, I know daylight's really important, but I think actually this view might also be significant. But if I'm staring at my computer screen and I'm perpendicular to the window, my visual focus and my cone of vision, you know, what I'm seeing is that computer screen. I'm not seeing what's happening outside of the window. So they did an experiment where they moved the workstations, and it cost them about $1,000 per workstation, to move them 11 degrees off of perpendicular. Not much, just 11 degrees off of perpendicular. But what that did was that now things going on outside, like the wind rustling the leaves, or a butterfly flying past, or a bird going past, or suddenly the clouds changing and moving. Um, that now is visible in your peripheral vision. And we're way attuned to movement in our peripheral vision than we are movement right in front of us, right? And you know, that's one of those ones where which tiger eats you? <laughs> the one you see sitting up there in front of you or the one jumping out of the grass on your side, right? So we respond to that movement much quicker. Now, if I can, at 11 degrees, now movement outside the window is gonna be my peripheral vision. And with that movement, I will look up and look away. If I look away for 40 seconds at that view of nature, I have attention restoration. So now I have better cognitive capacity. But even just the physical act of changing my visual focus from the near visual focus where I'm looking at my computer screen, something that is less than a meter away from me. Mm. The way that works in the eye is when I'm looking at something up close, the lens in the eye needs to round. And to do that, all the muscles in the eye have to contract. Mm. And I can only do that for so long until I start getting tired. So I, feel I can get you to look up and look away, particularly at something that's more than 33 meters or more than 100 feet away. That's now what's called the infinite visual focus. And the way that we see objects that far away is that the lens flattens and the lens flattens by all the muscles in the eye relaxing. So now I have both the psychological and the, and the brain benefit, but I also have the physical benefit of relaxing the eyes. So that simple change led to a 6% increase in call handling capacity in that call center. And that translated to $2,999 per workstation. That's a really good return for just simply 
<laughs> changing arrangement and getting that view to the outside. Um, that's really a, an interesting uh, example um, of the economics of biophilic design. I'm wondering, like, what just to riff on this a little bit more, why not put workstations right in front, like, of a window? Why just the periphery? Like, was there some compelling reason they did that? Um, some of it was if you put all the, you, you couldn't get, everybody couldn't get right in front of the window. Right. It's a big enough space where um, there I couldn't set it up so that everyone could have that direct view. Um, so getting it in the peripheral vision was something that I could do and I could do for everyone, but I couldn't do it. But giving everyone a direct view spatially wasn't wasn't going to happen. Is that would that have resulted in an even higher increase in revenue per workstation if people could actually had i guess it would still be possibly in their peripheral or maybe in their the vision their 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 vision frontal vision or whatever it's called like if i have this right in front of me a window and i have my screen does that increase like is there are there gradients here of of benefit that'd be worth experimenting <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a direct answer for that but okay well that might be a first bill browning <laughs> <laughs> well that's fascinating are there any other uh, really uh, compelling stories that you'd like to share with people with respect to the economics yeah and we've the, got a bunch i mean things like um you know in healthcare, uh one of the early studies was looking at uh uh, patients uh, recovering from one specific surgery and, and they had um, half of the patients had a view of a brick wall and the other half had a <clears throat> view to some trees. And patients who had the view to the trees got out of the hospital almost a, a day sooner. And that's really important for the economic, you know, it's great for the patients. They also took less painkillers and had fewer nursing calls. Right. But if I can turn over a hotel a hospital bed quicker, that's really, really beneficial mm -hmm. because, um, you know, you, the, the hospital makes its money by treating more patients and being able to do surgeries and treat patients. Mm -hmm. If I'm just parked in a bed, I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting care, but that's not as economically beneficial. And it also limits the number of of patients that the hospital is able to treat. Mm -hmm. So if I'm healing faster and able to get out of there quicker, mm -hmm. that's really a benefit to the operation of the hospital. Things yeah, I think like, hospitals have really started to catch on to this research. Yeah. And I so you see on. healing gardens and you see green walls. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of great stuff going on in hospitals. We're also seeing, you know, that little garden is really great for helping with uh, burnout and stress uh, with hospital staff. And we really, really got a sense of that in the middle of COVID. Oh, I bet. Uh, what about um, hotels? Uh, I seem to recall you sharing some information about some research you did about hotel lobbies not too long ago. So we were interested in, does biofig design change the guest experience? So we did an observational study, and thank God for interns, where someone would sit in the lobby. We chose six hotels in Midtown Manhattan, 
three of which were conventional lobbies, conventional design, and three of which had really good biophilic design. And we looked at, did it change the way people use that space? Uh, and we were asking, were the people just transitory moving through the space? Were they sitting and passively using the space, maybe just sitting by themselves quietly? Or were they actively using the space, engaging with other people um, and meeting with people and, and having active engagement? And what we saw was that those hotels with biophilic design measures had a 36% increase in the number of active and passive users. Now, what that means for a hotel operation is that if I'm smart enough to have a little cafe or a little bar or a little restaurant in that lobby, all of a sudden, now if I've got a 36% increase in the number of folks who are sitting in my lobby, I have a increased revenue potential. And that's great for a hotel because anytime they can increase revenue without having to sell another room, another bed, um, that's fantastic. And you know, 36% increase in the number of active and passive users, that's pretty telling. So that was that's a pretty great outcome. And it's really fun because we did a neck, we did one more uh one more layer on that, and that we we looked at um how those six hotels described themselves. So, so we did a keyword engine search uh, of their websites of how they describe themselves. And then we followed that up with the keyword search of the 10 most recent TripAdvisor reviews of those, of those same hotels. And what we found was that, you know, pretty much number one, all the hotel brands, you know, talk about design and decor and the feel of that. They talk about experience, and you know that's one of the things they talk about the most. But when you look at the guest response on the conventional hotels, the number one response by far was service and maintenance. How good was the service and maintenance? That's a strong response on the biophilic hotels. But what we see is a stronger response uh, in the biophilic design hotels is the design and decor. Um, but even more important was guest experience. The numbers for guest experience in the biophilic hotels was double those of the conventional hotels. So that really, really clearly is playing through. Um, and particularly more and more as more and more hotel bookings are done online, the visuals and what that space looks like and you know being able to see those sorts of things visually turns out to be a major decider uh, or deciding factor in how people choose hotels. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's very interesting. Um, are there any key lessons that you can share with, you know, building owners and designers that might be listening from your new work? Are there any kind of like couple of takeaways that stand out for you? Yeah, one is, uh, um, and this comes from education, but it's uh, applicable across a lot of different building types. And that was, you don't have to do huge major interventions to make a difference. And so we did a year long experiment in partnership with um, 
Jim Detterman, the CDG architects in Baltimore, the neuroscience team at the Salk Institute and several departments of um, Morgan State University located in Baltimore. And it was a year long study of what would be the impact of minimal biophilic design interventions in a sixth grade mathematics classroom in inner city Baltimore. And so this was already, this was a school that, uh, a 1925 school that had already been retrofitted as a lead platinum school. Oh. Right? So it's already in good shape. Uh, but we wanted to take it a little step further. So we chose a couple classrooms on the, uh, the long facades of the building are east and west, which is kind of problematic uh, because, you know, in the morning you get blasted with the sunlight on the east side and in the afternoon you get blasted on the west side. So while they had these big windows and capability for great daylight, and on the east side, there was a garden outside uh, visible from the second floor, these second floor classrooms. Um, in most cases, the Venetian blinds were down and closed all the time because it was, it was work to open and close those. Then the walls of, of classrooms are covered with posters with formulas and stuff on it. And the neuroscientists at Salk said, you know, those are little that's a bit overstimulating. So we got permission to take most of those off the walls. What we changed in the room was, you know, take most of the posters off the wall. We put carpet tiles on the floor that had a pattern that's a collinear pattern, like we talked about before, a biomorphic form that looked like waving prairie grass. We took posters off the wall, but we didn't leave the walls blank. There were some posters still up, but we put a wallpaper freeze around the top of the classroom. And the wallpaper freeze was a strip that was an abstraction of palm leaves. So now you have a biomorphic form that has collinear patterns within it. There are some waveform ceiling tiles that were put on one part of the ceiling. And then the Venetian blinds were replaced with fabric uh, shades uh, called Meco shades that are partly uh, trans. You can see some image through them, but we silk screened onto the surface of those window shades the pattern of tree branch shadows. So now you have a statistical fractal on the window surface. So the nature of the experiment was to look at learning outcomes over the course of a year. And we compared the performance of the 125 students who used that classroom for that year to the 122 students who used that classroom the prior year, same classroom, same teacher teaching the same curriculum. And the testing was done based on the, uh, what are called iReady tests, which is an online testing system that's used all over the country and used throughout the Baltimore school system and it's applied several times a year. And what you're looking for in that is that does their knowledge capacity, their learning rate increase over the course of the year so that by the end of the year, you have a higher percentage that are testing at, yes, they've learned sixth grade mathematics. Did they know that there was an experiment going on? 
Um, probably because the room looked different than the other rooms. Mm. Right? But okay. if you're if I'm in a space for a whole year, you know the Hawthorne effect of oh I'm excited about the change in the space that goes away pretty quickly, and we see that in lots of other data sets of if you know. There's that temporary, when I first get it in the space, oh, I'm excited about this, this is different, this is cool. But after you've been using a space for a while, um, that newness wears off. Mm, okay. So when you look at the data set, the first test is done in early September. And the numbers for the uh, earlier class and then this uh, year's class in September are almost exactly the same, which is great because that tells you that both sets of kids are coming in exactly at the same level. And what you see um, in both data sets is the kids learn over the course of the year, but the learning rate in the biophilic version of that classroom is three times higher than it was um, the differential uh, in the prior year. Three times, three, three times. times. Yeah, so three that's, times higher, three hundred percent higher. The 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 differential in learning rate, yes, is three is three that's massive. It's huge. That's a huge outcome. We also wanted to do biometric testing. Now, getting permission to do biometric testing in a public school is quite difficult. Um, so we were only able to put it all together and finally get uh, do biometric testing for four months of the year. And this experiment was set up slightly differently. In this case, we um, had a control classroom that was a seventh grade mathematics classroom to a doors down. And uh, then our sixth grade mathematics classroom, both uh, we chose one period, which was the period uh, after lunch. And so a 90 minute period class meets Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for 90 minutes. At the beginning of class, uh, we take a heart rate variability number and 90 minutes later at the end of class, we measure that for each of the students as well. Now heart rate variability is a little different than blood pressure or heart rate. Blood pressure, heart rate, you don't want higher numbers. Heart rate variability, which is the variation between the time between heartbeats, actually a higher number is better because it indicates if I have more variation between the periods in heart rate and heartbeats, that tells me my stress recovery characteristics are improved or better. If I'm really stressed, my heart rate variability, my heart goes thump, 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 very, very regular. But mm -hmm. if I get more variation in that, that's telling me my stress recovery characteristics are much better. And what we saw in the control classroom was the numbers at the end of class were pretty much the same they were at the beginning of class. But what we saw in the biophilic classroom was over the course of the 90 minutes that they used that classroom, the numbers got better. Their stress recovery characteristics at the end of the 90 minutes of class were better than they were when they came into the classroom. And, and all you did was change the floor, the flooring, the take down some of the posters. Blinds. So window blinds, the wall, what was on the wall and what was on the floor, right? Which probably didn't cost the very much money, I would imagine. Well, to, that your, was earlier, to your earlier point. Right. 
That was the whole point of, you know, can I make minimal changes that make a difference? You know, and so that was using largely biomorphic forms and statistical fractals. So uh, the complexity and order pattern and the biomorphic forms uh, pattern were the two predominant ones that we used in that. Mm. And so that was, you know, that was a really great outcome, but you know, that's also applicable to lots of, you know, not just classrooms, right? I could do those same sorts of measures in a hospital room and community rooms and in offices, right? I can apply those to lots of different places and, and lots of different ways. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's very promising, very promising research. Uh, so, you know, in this age that we're in right now, there's been forest fires, there's droughts, you floods, heat waves, we're bombarded with negative information about the natural world. And so many people are upset with the world and the wars that are going on and how we seem to be heading into some kind of widespread climate-based disaster. And I'm wondering, what is the role for biophilic design? How important is that for society? And are you feeling hopeful these days? Is so, there a reason to feel hopeful? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things that one of the tech companies that we work with, one of the outcomes they were interested in among their employees, and there seems to be some evidence for this, was does the presence of biophilic design make people more attuned to environmental uh, conditions and maybe more ready and, and willing to engage in positive action and making changes. One of the things that we see after people have uh, have an awe experience is they tend to be more charitable and more community focused. Uh, we see in some of the evidence on biophilic design, things like tree canopy and green space and adding even just adding street trees um, and little pocket parks leads to more pro-social behaviors and a decrease in crime in neighborhoods. And it lowers the heat island as well, right? So we, we have that health benefit as well. And so, uh, you know, and adding green roofs changes that heat island as well. And if I can view that green roof. Um, so there are, you know, I think that biophilia and biophilic design uh, is one piece of a larger equation of actions for us to be taking to sort of change that relationship and change people's mindset. We even just, um, we just got to do a presentation a couple of days ago with a fire chief and a team of architects that designed a brand new fire station in Marion, Iowa, that was focused on using biophilic design to lower the PTSD symptoms of the firefighters. Right, um, because a lot of them are really struggling with it, and the burnout rate and suicide rate among firefighters is frightening, and um, and recruitment is really really tough. And they opened this new fire station, and even though they don't pay as much salary as the some of the competing uh, other nearby cities they last year got the highest recruitment rate they've ever gotten because people wanted to be have that experience of being a firefighter based in in that place um and so for us that that really gives me 
um, a lot of hope. That is, uh, that's fantastic. And um, yeah, if we can, if we can tease out the, those ancient relationships and reinforce them, then maybe perhaps we are a little bit less alienated from the natural world and more likely to engage in its restoration and protection. I think that think in a way that that's what you're, what you're communicating here. What's up? So, yeah, that's the idea. Where do we go from from here to find out more about your work? Obtain a copy of your latest uh, book. Where where do we send people, Bill? So go to the Terrapin Bright Green website and the publication section, and you will find a bunch of different papers there, all of which people can download at no charge. Uh, so fourteen patterns of biophilic design, economics of biophilia. Um, the 14 Patterns of Biophilic Design, we now have multiple languages. Um, so Spanish and French and Italian um, and other languages. And uh, Economics of Biophilia, the new edition, uh, just came out. We also have papers on uh, Nature Sound, on psychoacoustics, a paper called The Year for Nature, another paper on why do we love wood you know, and what... What, what are the biophilic characteristics of wood and why do we respond to it differently than other materials? Uh, there are papers on fractals. Um, so there are uh, the Baltimore school study is there as well. The hospitality studies are there. Um, and then there's also a link to a book that we did with the Royal Institute of British Architects called Nature Inside Biophilic Design Guide. And that's really a tool for designers that goes through examples of biophilic design and application tools uh, for a variety of different space types. That's the only thing you can't download from our website. You'll need to get that from Rutledge or RIBA or Amazon or another book outlet. That's great, Bill. Thanks so much for your time today. And uh, you're constantly opening my eyes to new aspects of the very interesting and complex relationship between our bodies and the world around us. And uh, I'm really uh, appreciative and, gra and grateful for the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about for us what's a really fun topic. Great. So thanks everyone for joining us. This wraps up our uh, 12th edition of Sustainable Futures. There uh, are quite a few amazing interviews in this series. If you want to find out more, you can go to livingarchitecturemonitor.com, click on the podcast uh, icon at the top and learn a lot from uh, fantastic experts that are doing great work to uh, improve our life here on planet Earth. Thank you very much. Take care.